large cup of water? I was sweating. Um, Alright, so tonight y'all can open up the Romans. That's probably not a surprise. But if it is, welcome to the book of Romans. We're going to chapter 2 tonight. Okay, so as you do that, uh, last week we looked at the end of chapter 1 and we talked about um, the wrath of God uh, revealed for the unrighteous. And we defined what the unrighteous were, which was what? Do you remember? I got it. Oh, we got it. Not what? Not with God. Definitely not God or with God. Not holy. Without fault. With what? fault. What is unrighteousness? <laughs> with fault. Without faith. Okay. Yeah. You can't have. Well, in unrighteousness, you go in and have faith. Yes. Yes. Any other? So without with fault, you said right. You what? Unholy. Okay. And we said like the reverse of righteousness, which is like good standing, right? Um, not liable to debt. To what? Bad standing, exactly. That's yes, literally what I said wait, last week. What is good standing? Good standing. So we talked about righteousness and unrighteousness, just to clarify this. As a, a concept, um, I realized I didn't fix my hair because it's distracting. Tori took a photo of you were looking at probably should. So we talked about unrighteousness and righteousness, and maybe to help you understand these terms is to think about them in a courtroom type setting. So in a courtroom setting, you are on trial, and the verdict is whether or not you are guilty or not guilty. And you are guilty if you are unrighteous or without righteousness, and you are not guilty if you have righteousness. So when we talk about good standing and bad standing, we're talking about standing in the judgment or the courtroom of God in bad standing, Meaning, I am only with unrighteousness. I don't have any good standing. I'm guilty. I'm at fault. I have a debt that has to be paid. All those things are true of me as I stand here in unrighteousness. And then if I stand over here in righteousness, I have good standing, right standing, and I'm not guilty. I have no debt because it's been paid. I'm holy, as someone else said. So that's what we're talking about. We talk about righteousness and unrighteousness. Those are kind of those like big church Bible words. But Romans, the book we're going through, uses them a lot. So we want to make sure that we actually understand them as we're reading uh, the passage and going through this book because they're super important, and they will be tonight again for understanding the book of Romans, but even more important than understanding the gospel and understanding what Paul is trying to get us to. Uh, get our brains wrapped around, which is this. The righteousness of God in Jesus has been given to us, the unrighteous, because he was perfect. And we needed it. Because all we have is unrighteousness. And as we looked at last week, and we'll look at again this week, what's revealed against the unrighteousness, as scripture would tell us, is wrath, justice. God's divine justice poured out onto the unrighteous, those that have gone against 
his law, his rules, his ways, and against him, the unrighteous. Okay, so we're going to look at chapter 2 tonight. I told you the first probably about three chapters are just hammering sin, basically. Like, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, it's not going to work if you just keep working, and we're going to look at that tonight. So, if you feel a little bit like, golly, this guy is just continuing to go back to this, go back to this, go back to this. He's trying to get his readers to understand, hey, by the end of this, I hope you see nothing in yourself that you're going to stand before Jesus on the last day and claim. Okay? And we're going to see that in our passage tonight. So, last week we talked about um, what I would call the pagans or the Gentiles, and that that wrath of God was poured out on the irreligious, those who were not with God, not God's people, those who did not care about his law. It was poured out on those people, the irreligious. Tonight, we're going to see that not only the irreligious that need the gospel, but the religious that need the gospel. Those that were God's people, those that were the Israelites, the people of God, all the way back from Genesis, that, people, that God has been carrying along, that he's been giving his covenant to, those people are not exempt. They need the gospel. They need Jesus as well as the irreligious one that we talked about last week. So um, after last week, you may have been thinking, maybe this came across your mind. Wow, this sounds like some bad people. Like the people we just listed out, maybe you need to go back to chapter one and read through some of the descriptions. You may be thinking, whoa. That seems like some really bad people. And while you may not say that with your mouth, or you may not think, man, I'm glad I'm not that way, uh, you may think, I'm so much better than those people. Well, the Jewish people would have thought the same thing when they read Romans 1. They would have read Romans 1 and thought, yeah, the wrath of God should be poured out on them, those evil people, those despicable people. Like, look at the way they live. And they would pour judgment out on them. But they would think they were okay. Those people are what get addressed here in chapter 2 that we're going to talk about. Um, the wow, that sounds bad. I definitely know some of those people. Um, this talking in our language may sound something like, those old people over there really need Jesus. You ever said that before about other people? Wow. That guy in the class really needs me. Really needs some Jesus. Me, I'm okay. But that guy over there, he needs him some Jesus. Or you may have heard uh, the great Southern saying, "Bless their heart." Oh, just bless their heart, right? Maybe you heard your grandmother say that about someone, and they're saying it like it's kind. But what are they really saying? They're saying, "Wow, look at them." That's really too bad that they're so dumb, broken, lost, evil. And then the other thing is you maybe you've heard is just, well, they're just struggling. They're just struggling. Those people, they just, they're just struggling. They just need Jesus. And we start to think that we're exempt sometimes. And the Jewish people definitely thought they were exempt. They were out from this condemnation that we talked about. Because they're good. They're moral. They're upstanding people. They follow the law. You know the law, the Ten Commandments that God laid out? The Jewish people tried to follow it. 
It mattered to them to follow it. They were God's people. God had called them his people, his possession. They were special. And they were. But they took that specialness too far in understanding what they really needed. Um, <clears throat> so let's look at the end of chapter 1. It says this, uh, starting in verse 29. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. So listen to the, the terms of these people. Evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They, though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. All those words that I just read, I'm going to guess most of you feel like, well, that's definitely not me. Like, that's it. Like, far into the, the spectrum degree. Like, that's really intense of a bad person. And you may even say these things about other people in your life, but you would never think them about yourself. So what's the problem with this? This, yep, not me. Like, the Jewish people, it's like, well, I, you know, I've got, i got church, I got his laws, we're his people. But what's the problem with this? Well, Paul calls us out in the beginning of chapter 2. So go to chapter 2, look at verses 1 uh, and 2. It says, Therefore, have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. You see, Paul goes, I know what you're thinking, Jewish people. You just read chapter 1, and you're thinking, I'm pretty great. Like, compared to those people, gosh, I am doing really well. Like, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that. And what he's saying here is, as you judge all those, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that, don't do that. You're actually condemning yourself. Because the same standard that you put onto them, you actually fail to do yourself. We pass judgment on others to make our own selves feel either worse or better. Everyone in here, I don't think anyone had to be told how to judge. We just do it naturally. We look at someone, we look at their life, we look at their values, we look at the way they dress, the things that they care about, and we judge. We make an assessment. Okay, yep, see this, see this? That's who you are. I know, I know exactly who you are. And we start passing judgment on people. But no matter which direction, whether it's judgment that makes you feel worse or judgment that makes you feel better about yourself, both of them are selfish. Both are still about ourselves. Because it may be judgment, you look on someone else and you're like, what I'm judging in them right now, I wish I could be. Or you step on the other side and you look at them and go, wow, you make me feel a lot better about myself because of the things you choose to do with me. Both sides are selfish. They're lifting up the self. Paul is trying to help us to look at our hearts before our hands. Jesus taught the same way. Anger 
equated to murder for Jesus. Remember, he really pressed the Jewish people on this because they would say, well, I haven't murdered anybody. Jesus is like, you don't get it. I'm not asking just what your hands do, but I'm I'm asking what's in your heart. Is your anger for other people, that's equated to murder for God. It's breaking the law. The same thing's true, he says, about lust. Some of them may say, well, I didn't commit adultery. Say, if you look on a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. And again, the focus is your heart. And that was where the Jewish people, and I would say us as church people, miss. We judge ourselves on what we do with our hands, but we often don't look at our heart and say, what's going on here? It's always a matter of the heart for Jesus. You may look onto others' life, actions, or thoughts and pass judgment, but what attitude do you pass judgment under? Do you say, that's wrong, and I'm glad I'm not as bad as you, or I feel a lot better about myself now? Do you ever hear yourself asking these things? So to translate a little bit from this passage, you have decided that some people are more worthy of God's wrath and judgment than you may be. I think that's at base level what Paul is trying to get them to see. You're missing it. Those people that you just read about in chapter 1, you actually believe that they are worthy of more wrath than you. Why is that? It's because you think you're good. Like your good actions make you better than them. Paul's going, no, both of you are totally selfish in your actions. Neither of them are honoring God, neither of them are lifting up his name, and neither of them are bringing glory to him. Both of them are about either yourself looking good or doing something for yourself. It's about heart's motive. So look at Romans 2, 1 through 5 again. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you presume... On the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance because of your hard and impotent heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, condemning others becomes our default until we're caught in the similar position or sin. And then all of a sudden the behavior that we started condemning in another person becomes not that bad. When it becomes our behavior. We start to justify things, right? If you start to look at someone else and you used to push judgment and sin on that person. And then you actually started walking in similar sin. All of a sudden that sin's not as bad. It goes all the way back to the heart. It goes all the way back to the way that we judge 
We do this because it allows us to hang on to our own sin and stay self-righteous. Because here's the deal. If you in here struggle with self-righteousness, and I'm going to guess that's most of us, here's what we do. If there's anything that's going to come in and attack my self-righteousness, my good standing, my good reputation, I am going to start justifying the sin that's doing that. Because I want to keep my reputation. And when we start justifying sin, that's a great check engine light for where our heart is. We qualify stuff all the time. Just a couple of examples away, I think we qualify stuff. You may hear you say things like, well, that situation was different. Was it really different? Or you may say, yeah, but you don't know the other side of the story. Or you may say, it didn't do as much as, or I didn't do as much as they did. They crossed the line like way more than I did. I love this quote. Um, of course, my, uh, let's see if it'll actually turn for me. I have a photo and it's turned upside down in here. Now I'm turning and it's not working. Let's see if I can, here we go. All right, it says, you'll never understand sin's sleight of hand until you acknowledge that the DNA of sin is deception. What does this mean? This means that personally, that a sinner, we are all very committed and gifted self-swindlers. I say all the time to people that no one is more influential in their own lives than they themselves are because no one talks to them more than they themselves do. We are all skilled at looking at our own wrong and seeing good. We're all much better at seeing the sin, weakness, and failure of others than we are our own. We're all very good at being intolerant of others at the very things that we willingly tolerate in ourselves. The bottom line is this, that sin causes us not to hear or see ourselves with the accuracy that's needed. And we not only tend to be blind, but to compound matters, we tend to be blind to our own blindness. So I want you to imagine something real quick. Someone gave me this example one time, and it struck me for this topic. Uh, because right here, I'm a recovering self-righteousness addict. Imagine if someone put a necklace around your neck with a little recorder. And what that recorder did was it took in every word, thought, that ever came out of your mouth or entered your mind. And it ran through your whole life. And when Jesus comes back on that day, what he's going to do is he's going to take that recorder and he's going to click play. And he's going to let it run. And when he does that, how many of us are going to stand there and go, I'm going to make it? None of us, right? But here's the trick. Half of us in this room spend many days of the week thinking we are. We're so deceived, guys, that we're good, that we don't need Jesus, that I have the morals, the values, 
my family that I come from, the church that I go to, those things will save me. We may never say that with our mouth, but in our heart and the way we live our lives, it would scream it loudly. And here's the truth of tonight that he's trying to tell the Jewish people and I'm trying to tell us. Our only hope is Jesus. The religious need Jesus It's like we forget all the things that were caught on the recorder, at least we're able to justify them. You see, uh, this quote is also calling out this verse that we just walked through. And Paul calls out the Jews on their arrogance, their short-sightedness as his people. Listen to the statement he, he tells them in verse 4. He says, do you presume on the, righteous, or, or, sorry, on the riches of his kindness? What's he asking here? He's asking, hey... Do you think your specialness is what's going to get you into heaven? Because you grew up in a Christian family? Or because you go to church every Sunday? What, do, you, do you believe that's what's going to do it? Because they did. They believed it would be enough that they were just God's people. That he had made them his, called them his, but they decided that they don't need Jesus. They don't need repentance. So he calls them out for this. How does this apply to us? Like I just said, I think it applies to our family. I think it applies to our friends. I think it applies to our church. How do I know this? Think about this. How do most people start their testimonies? You know, the story of how Jesus has saved them. I grew up in a Christian home. Okay, why do we start there? I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But I think it's telling about what we think about that. If I'm asking, what's your testimony of how Jesus has saved you? That can be part of it. But I think we attach so much to it. And a lot of y'all have been in church for a really long time. And I guess what I want you to hear tonight is, it's not your family, it's not your church, it's not your friends who are going to save you. It is only Jesus. Do you believe that you are all good because your family and church that you belong to? Is that going to be what you claim on judgment? Jesus, so this is my family, and I went to the Bond Community Church a short period of time, and then I was over at this Baptist church for, no, right? I'm going to step in, and while all those things are part of my story, the only thing that I want to say on the last day is, Jesus, I'm here because you have given your righteousness to me. Because I place my faith in you. No other reason. My faith in you is why I am coming into your kingdom. Why you are going to let me in. Because I don't have anything of my own that's going to get me in. 
only what you've given me. You might say, well, Andrew, all that's kind of harsh. It's not very fun to hear. Here's what I want you to also take from this passage tonight. The Lord is patient. The Lord is so patient with us. Hoping that all come to repentance. But do not take his patience lightly. Or for your advantage. Rather see it as an immediate call to come back to Jesus and repent. Knowing that Jesus is your only hope for the day that is coming. We talk, I say this a lot, and I know some of you may not be thinking this all the time, but I want to continue to come back to this. The reality is, guys, tomorrow is not a given. It's not. Jesus didn't give me a calendar and tell me, you have until 2035. Enjoy. No, he just said be ready. So if you want to sit here and presume on his patience, do it at your own peril. Or put your faith in Jesus. Follow him. Trust him. His patience is what leads us. His kindness is what leads us to repentance. Don't find your worth in yourself or your morality. Look at verse 5. It says that you, in doing so, are storing up wrath for yourself. And presuming on your own goodness, you are actually just storing wrath up on yourself. So let's do some diagnostics here real quick. Some check engine lights, right? Some drivers out there know about the lights that come on that tell you things are wrong in your car. Okay? And those that don't drive, I'm just telling you right now, there's lights that come on in the car. They're not just like fun lights. They actually tell you things. Check engine lights. <clears throat> so, uh, are you the person that Paul is talking about here? I'm going to ask three questions. I have another picture, so I'm going to have to... Hey. <clears throat> All right, so the first one of the three. Do you feel that you are a hopeless sinner whom God would have a perfect right to cast off this minute because of the state of your life and your heart. Two, when you consider how those outside your church live, do you shake your head and judge in your heart, or do you think, my heart is by nature just like theirs. It just shows itself differently. And last, do you deep down think there is no recorder or that you can stand before God in your own judgment when the tape is played? Or have you accepted that your own values will condemn you and that you will need to be given a right standing, a righteousness that you could never achieve yourself? Romans 2, 6 through 10 confirms these things. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury 
There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Both the irreligious from chapter 1 and the religious from this chapter are asked to consider the same thing. What have you done or not done? Regardless, repentance is truly the main issue. You know, there's a story in the Bible that really um, paints this well that Jesus taught. And almost everyone in here, I'm going to guess, knows this story. It's the story of the prodigal son. Right? The story of the prodigal son is this son who comes to his father and says, I would like my inheritance now. And the father goes, okay. He hands over his inheritance to him. And what does the son do? He takes the inheritance and he goes off and he lives wildly, spending it on everything the earth could offer him. And he ends up in a pigsty. No money without family. These are the people of chapter 1. These are the people that live in this world and drink from it for everything it could offer. But what happens to the son? He comes home. After deeply sinning, he comes home, and what does the father do? The father runs out to him and throws his coat around him and kisses him and brings him in and says, we are going to make a feast and celebrate that my son has come home. That coming home is a repentance. It's a turning from the direction that he was heading and a turning back to the father that he had left and he had taken everything and destroyed that he had given him. But it's a coming back and it's a celebration of repentance. Now there's another character in this story. It's the older brother. There is an older brother in the house that never left. He never got the inheritance. He has worked and sweated for his dad for years. And when the son comes back home, what does he say? All this time, I've been working for you, and he goes off and spends everything, and you're going to party for him? That's who he's talking to in Romans 2. It's the brother who thinks that he is good enough. He's better than his brother. And what does the father say? He's like, look at the son. Your brother has come home. Let's celebrate. You see, he didn't understand repentance. Even though he had been in the house, he had done the things that he was supposed to do, he didn't understand repentance. He didn't understand his position, his, his need for repentance. Both seeking selfish gain, but neither see the need for, their, for the mercy and grace of God until the prodigal finally comes home. So let me talk to the older brothers in the room tonight. Not actually older brothers, but the ones in here that would say like me, I lift my hand and go, are you also a recovering self-righteous addict? 
the people in the room that would say, I struggle deeply with the judgment of others to make myself look better. I care so much about the goodness of my reputation, the goodness of my morals, those people. I want to talk to you tonight. And for most of you, because you've been in the church for a long time, I'm going to guess it's most of you. Here's what I want you to hear. You don't have to manipulate God as he looks at you. You do not have to manipulate God as he looks at you. You don't have to run from him in fear and shame because you weren't good enough today. You didn't do well enough. You don't have to rationalize away your wrongs because if I start accepting my wrongs, then I'm wrong. You don't have to work to shift blame. The self-righteous ones in this room are great at this. Well, I don't want it sticking to me. Push that over that direction. You don't have to put forward false pretenses or a fake self. Some of you in here have worn a mask for a really long time because you're really terrified that if people really knew who you were, what you thought, and what you do, they would reject you. And you think the same thing about God. It's not true. He knows all that stuff. You can't fool him. And he still says, come. You don't have to control arguments for your acceptance. And last, you don't have to try to buy your way into his favor. Stop bartering with God. I can't tell you, I'm almost 33, been walking with the Lord for a long time. This is still hard. And I'll give you an example. So something may happen in my life, and I'll go immediately to this. Well, how good or bad have I been living? Well, it's probably happening because I've been living good. Or it's probably happening because I've been living bad. Let me tell you right now, it's a lie. That God doesn't operate like that. Will there be consequences if we choose to do certain things? Sure, but we're not talking about that tonight. What I'm talking about with you is that your favor, your standing in front of your Heavenly Father is not something to be bought. Why? Because Jesus has already bought it for you. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to read your Bible every day so God will love you. You don't have to make sure that you pray enough that God loves you. He loves you without that stuff because he loves you in Jesus. Run to Jesus. Stop running to goodness or good works or a good reputation or seeming like you have it all together. The one who will judge you and I is the same one who has justified you and I, who has declared us righteous. Put faith in his righteousness daily, 
not in room. Rest, hope. You don't have to anymore because Christ has. You don't have to anymore. I remember there was one night I sat in my chair. I was listening to uh, a talk when I was in college, and we were singing, and I just sat down, and I started weeping. And the only thing that kept coming out of my mouth was, I can't, I can't, I can't. And in that moment, I felt the Lord say to me, I never asked you to. never asked you to. And maybe you're sitting there tonight and maybe you sat there in your story where you've gotten to the place where I can't anymore, I can't. And he's trying to tell me, I never asked you to. Accept what I've given in Jesus. Find your righteousness in Jesus. The gospel is for the recovering religious and self-righteous people, as well as for the Romans one pagan and moralist. On the last day, I want you to claim no other name than Jesus and him alone for your ability to stand guiltless and blameless. such good news tonight, and I hope it is. I hope it is rest for a soul that is tired. I hope maybe for the first time you're able to take a breath because you've been running on the same treadmill of trying to do enough. And God's saying, I've already done it. Let's pray.